The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. During the church age, there are two rituals for the believer priest. The first has to do with uh, baptism. The second is the Lord's table. These two rituals are designed to teach through a picture uh, certain doctrinal realities that are true for every believer. The communion table teaches us about the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are two elements in the Lord's table. The first is unleavened bread. And the reason it is unleavened is because in Scripture, the leaven represents sin or evil. And since Jesus Christ was born without a sin nature, without the imputation of Adam's original sin, and during his lifetime he committed no act or thought of personal sin, he was impeccable. He was without sin. And that qualified him to go to the cross. There was nothing redemptive about uh, his impeccability. There are some that do teach that, that we are saved both by his sinless life and by his death on the cross, and that's not what the Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that salvation is based on the fact that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins, and his uh, suffering in life, whatever that entailed, was not related to the soteriological payment of the penalty for our sins on the cross. That was restricted to the period from 12 noon to 3 p.m. on that afternoon. He's qualified to go to the cross because he led a sinless life. When he was on the cross, he died. There were two deaths on the cross. The first death is a spiritual death. The second, a physical death. It was the spiritual death that redeemed us from the slave market of sin because on, in the spiritual death he paid the penalty kind for kind. See, the penalty for sin is, spirit, was, is spiritual death. When Adam sinned, he died instantly. He was separated from God. He could no longer have fellowship with God. And that was exemplified by the fact that when God came to walk in the garden with, with he and Eve, there was, they ran and hid. They were afraid. And when there is a broken fellowship... Uh, with God and inability to have a relationship with God, that's called spiritual death. But there was no physical death. A- Adam didn't die physically until he was 930 years old. So physical death then is the consequence of spiritual death. There were many different consequences of spiritual death. So Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for our sins, as a spiritual substitute for our sins between 12 noon and 3 p.m. When it was finished, John said, And that refers to the fact that the payment for sin was finished. When it was finished, the last thing Jesus said on the cross was to telestai, which means it is finished. It is the perfect passive of teleao, which means that it's paid in full. It is complete. Everything that needed to be done was done, but he was still alive. He then died physically because physical death is the most extreme consequence of spiritual death and the penalty for sin. By dying physically, going into the grave, and then being raised from the dead, his resurrection on 
Easter morning, on Sunday morning, on Resurrection Day, his resurrection demonstrated that he conquered sin and its consequence of physical death. And therefore, if Jesus Christ can solve the greatest problems we'll ever face, spiritual death and physical death, the implication is that he can solve any and every other problem that we face. So when we come to the Lord's table, it is our purpose as believers to be reminded of what Jesus Christ, who Jesus Christ was and what he has done for us on the cross. It is an opportunity for us to quietly reflect and remember these doctrines, to think about Christology, what we know about Jesus Christ in terms of his person and work, and how that has made a significant difference in our own lives. So it is a time of quiet reflection and meditation where we focus and concentrate on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Before we go to the Lord's table, we always need to make sure that we are in fellowship. Paul warned the Corinthians that they were not to take the Lord's table in an unworthy manner, but they were to examine themselves uh, to make sure that they were in fellowship. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer. So with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I'm going to ask the two deacons to come forward who will be serving the Lord's table, and then I will ask Dave Tongren to return thanks for the bread.
how we would remember too our Father has promised that he would come again and gather us unto himself that where I am there ye may be also he said in Christ's name we pray At the Passover meal, Jesus celebrated with the disciples the night before he went to the cross. He took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this bread is my body which is given for you. Take and eat. I'm going to ask Bryce if he would return thanks for the cup, please. Heavenly Father, we come now to the second element of our communion service, the cup, Father. And as we have been taught this morning, the concept of kinsman redeemer is pictured here in the cup, Father, in the fact that Jesus Christ is our oil, is our kinsman redeemer, because through his spiritual work upon the cross, Father, he redeemed us from the slave market of sin. He also reconciled us to you, Father, and he propitiated you satisfied your perfect righteous standard. So as we partake of this cup together, Father, help us to be mindful of these things and we ask your blessings on it. In Christ's name we pray. Jesus then took the cup, the third cup, which was called the cup of redemption. And he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. As often as you drink this, do so in remembrance of me. Let's all stand together. Sing hymn number 158. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We thank you for the freedoms that we have in this nation that allow us to gather together to study your word and to teach it precisely. Father, we pray for our nation at this time of war against terrorism. We pray for military leaders and our political leaders that they might be willing to stay the course. We pray for our military leaders and their wisdom and their strategy carrying out the battle. We pray for our enemies, that they would make mistakes, and that we would be able to uh, find them and destroy them. Father, we pray that today, as we study your word, we would be responsive to its teaching, and that we would be encouraged by the fact that you control history, and all things are, are uh, have been planned out by you and are under your control. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things and see how they apply to our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, and we are in the next little section here, starting in verse 
18. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. 1 John 2, 18, John writes, Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen. From this we know that it is the last hour. Now, with this section, John is giving us his instruction to baby believers. And this section extends from verse 18 uh, down through verse 27. You'll see the next marker because in verse 28 he says, And now little children. So he returns back to the theme of addressing the congregation as with a term of endearment, technion, in verse 28, but in verse 18, it's paideia. After verse 18, I want to read the next section because we need to have this whole section in mind. We're going to spend several weeks going through these verses. There are some crucial doctrines that are covered in these verses. Verse 19 reads, They went out from us, but they were not really of us, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be shown that they are all not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise which he himself made to us eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. And as for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you. And you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, just as it has taught you, you abide in him. Now, when we look at this, we have to keep in mind the background is our framework of the stress busters or the problem-solving devices as ten spiritual skills that characterize different stages of our advance in the spiritual life. Now, we've gone over that again and again. And I just want you to keep in mind that, that at the advanced level, we focused on the, the love triplex, a personal love for God the Father, and personal love for all mankind, occupation with Christ. And the capstone of everything is when you have all that in place, the result of that is happiness. See, happiness is not a direct goal. You can't say, I'm going to have happiness, I'm going to have joy. Jesus Christ said he gave us joy, but most Christians don't have that. And that's because you have to get in place these spiritual skills and make them operational in your life. And the result of that is happiness. Happiness isn't something you go get. Happiness is the consequence of having your thinking oriented to doctrine and utilizing all these spiritual skills. That's why it is the final one. That's why James says in James 1-2, Count it all joy, my brethren, and then everything else in James is to teach how you face trials and difficulties so that you will have uh, that joy in the midst of trials and difficulties, that inner happiness that Jesus Christ had. Now, those were the advanced 
problem-solving devices or spiritual skills that relate to the fathers. Then we saw that the spiritual skill that has most relationship to spiritual adolescence is a personal sense of eternal destiny because it's at that stage which you quit living for tomorrow and you start living in your life in terms of eternity. And we developed that as we went through 14b through 17. And now we come to the children. Now the children are focusing on those those five basic problem-solving devices. Understanding confession so that you can get back in fellowship. Uh, staying in fellowship, which is the filling of the Holy Spirit or walking by means of the Holy Spirit. And all of that is encapsulated in the word abide, which relates to fellowship. And I want you to notice, I want to give us an overview this morning, at least at the beginning of this section. Look at verse 24 through 27. Circle the word abide. As for you, let that abide in you, which was from the beginning. That's going to relate to fellowship and doctrine. Doctrinal orientation. So remember those basic problem-solving devices. Confession of sin, filling of the Holy Spirit, faith rest drill, grace orientation, and doctrinal orientation. So let that abide in you, which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and Father. That relates doctrinal orientation to fellowship. Again and again, John is going to make a point that having fellowship with God isn't just a matter of not having committed personal sin, but it's also holding to an accurate view of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you are a heretic with regard to the person and work of Jesus Christ, you can't be in fellowship. You can't have fellowship with God. And then in verse 27, he talks about uh, abiding, he, uh, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, just as it is, has taught you, you abide in him. And that brings together the concept of abiding with anointing, which is uh, John's terminology for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the basis, then, for the filling of the Holy Spirit. And it's the filling of the Holy Spirit that is the key element uh, in, re- in relationship to fellowship. So, see, right there you're, you're seeing connections between the filling of the Holy Spirit, which is recovered through confession. You're seeing connections with uh, fellowship in, tr- in the terminology abide. You're seeing the importance of doctrinal orientation in terms of uh, correct beliefs regarding Jesus as the Christ back in verse 22 and 23. So this whole section is built around that framework. And that's why I've spent so much time building that framework of, of the problem-solving devices is because that, that provides a grid within which we not only can, can look at the Scriptures, but it also provides a grid and a system of application for taking what is being said in the Scriptures, breaking it down into these basic ten spiritual skills that are the basis of living the Christian life. So that's the framework. This is addressed to baby believers and starts off in verse 18, addressed to children. Now, we probably won't get past verse 18 this week because there are, or even next week because there are two crucial doctrines that form the backdrop for understanding verse 18. But before we get into that, we need to do some basic exegesis as we get started. I want you to look at the structure 
of this verse. Notice it says children. That's your, your vocative of address, addressing the immature believer. And then John says, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen. From this we know that it is the last hour. Now, if you've got your thinking cap on, you've noticed something. That he starts off saying it's the last hour and ends saying it's the last hour. But he makes two other statements in the middle of the verse, both of which relate to Antichrist. And this tells us that he is using a literary device known as a chiasmos in the, in the Greek, or chiasm, based on the Greek letter. You learned it probably if you were in, had anything to do with uh, a fraternity as the letter chi. But that's, uh, that was an old pronunciation when uh, somewhere back in the 40s they changed the whole uh, pronunciation system of, of Greek. And so instead of a long I, uh, anybody who's taken Greek in the last 50 years has learned to pronounce this with like a long E, the letter key. But the old way was chi, uh, and so this was called a chiasm, because if you look at these lines and graph them out like this, you get one side of the Greek letter X. So it is called a chiasm, and the function of a chiasm is to uh, draw our attention to the middle element. So the outer two elements, and sometimes you, have, you can have chiasms. For example, the entire structure of, I think it's Genesis chapter um, 10 with the Tower of Babel, the whole chapter is built on a chiasm that focuses attention on the act of rebellion at the Tower of Babel. And you have uh, sections of books that are built on, on a chiasmic structure. But here you have a very short chiasm based on only four elements in the list, and the uh, first and the last mirror each other, and the middle two mirror each other, so that the emphasis is on that middle element. It's like a frame of a picture that's designed to draw your attention to that central uh, central element. It, the first statement and the last statement are identical in the Greek as it is in the English, at least in the New American Standard. It is the last hour. The second and third element deal with the same subject, which is Antichrist. Second element says Antichrist is coming, and it's an anarthrus. That means there's no definite article, which usually emphasizes the quality of the noun. And in this case, it is a singular noun, so it reflects or it refers to one specific individual that will come in history. And then the third line says now, that is at this present time in the church age, there are many antichrists. And then it comes back to the last phrase, it is the last hour. Now, the repetition of the phrase, it is the last hour, is for emphasis. And the concept of the last hour must be investigated. This phrase is the phrase eschate hora in the Greek which is literally translated last hour. The word eschate comes from the noun. The adjective eschate comes from the noun eschatos, which is where we get our English word eschatology. Eschatology, which is the study of the last days or prophecy. And it is the last hour, and we have to understand what that means. 
the word eschate is you as the last hour is used in reference not just to something prophetic in the future. So when we think of the last hour, we think of either the most people think of the end of the church age, or they think of the tribulation. But that's not how it's being used. Notice the verb is a present active indicative of a mean. It is present tense. John is talking about the time that he is living in the pre-canon period of the church age, approximately, he's writing approximately uh, 80 or 90 A.D. The canon's almost finished, but not quite. And he's saying it is right now. We're already in the last hour. And so it will help us to look at some other passages in Scripture where we see this term used. And what we will discover is the term last days refers to a combination of the church age and the tribulation. It is the last period in human history before the destruction of the cosmic system, which John referred to back in verse 17, and the cosmic system is passing away. It is at the end of the last days. This is the last opportunity Satan has in his attempt to control mankind. It is the last hour. This is seen in other passages. For example, in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 3 we read, But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. And this is referring to the entire panorama of the church age. These are various historical trends that take place during the church age. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, and avoid such men as these. These are various trends that will go throughout the present church age. Sometimes they're more present than at other times, but these are always present during the church age. And we see it especially today in the United States of America because there has been primarily a uh, trend of negative volition against both Bible doctrine and uh, establishment truth for the last 50 years. And right now, uh, one of the things we're going to see regarding the Antichrist is it's these who promote a false doctrine. And one of the things I think that is, I, I perceive that's coming out of the war against terrorism and as a consequence of the attacks on September 11th, is you're seeing more and more people. I saw uh, a rep at 5 o'clock this morning when I got up in order to get prepared to feed the congregation. I was feeding myself uh, and watching channel flipping while I was having breakfast. I watched a repeat of Larry King last night, and he had on a, a representative of, of Islam, a professor of Islam, Islamic studies down at Georgetown University. He had a rabbi on. He had uh, a Roman Catholic priest on. And he had uh, Max Lucado on, who's a Church of Christ guy. And I've got some problems with him, but that's another story. Uh, I don't know. And a couple of nights ago, uh, Bill O'Reilly had... Uh, had uh, Jerry Falwell on. And 
the guys who are coming along saying Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven are being blasted by the media and by all these other religious groups because they're exclusionary. Because you, as Bible-believing Christians, we believe there's one and only one way to have access to God, and that is through Jesus Christ. Not because that is something that theologians have said, not because that is something that, that we generate, not because we hate people, but because that's what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, that the only way to salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. But more and more as a result of this, because the last thing in the world anybody wants to do in the media or in politics is to acknowledge the fact that this is, at least from the Islamic side, a religious war, and religious issues are really at the core. And we need to do some serious study of Islam. And since I'm going to be out of town for three weeks, leaving in about three weeks, to go to Russia to teach at a seminary over there, uh, I have secured a series of videotapes by a uh, Jewish guy. He's not a believer. His name's Avi Lipkin, and he speaks a lot in in um, evangelical churches. He was on a uh, at a conference and spoke with uh, Randy Price and Tommy Ice and Hal Lindsey and a couple of others down in Fort Worth over Labor Day. He has spoken with uh, in, in many different settings. He thinks that. Uh, uh, he has an interesting uh, life story, but he thinks that the best hope for the future of Israel are evangelical Bible-believing Christians in America, that we are Israel's best friends, and he's right about that. But he, his wife is an um, uh, Egyptian Jew, and her job, knowing Egyptian, is to listen to uh, the radio broadcast and read the Egyptian newspapers and to provide the as a, you know intelligence analysis for uh, the Israeli government and he has some incredible things to say about the origin of Islam and its impact and policies in the Middle East today and this is really a nine hour uh, series that he does we won't get a chance I don't think to get him here to speak to us, so this is the next best thing, and and I'm going to pick out, there's six sessions, I think, and I'm going to pick out three of the most significant ones, and we will show those, we'll fix up a a VCR to the projector, and so we'll have a widescreen projection up here to show that so everybody can get a good view, and we will show those on Wednesday nights while I'm over in Kiev teaching at uh, the seminary that Jim Myers has started over there. And uh, you will find that fascinating. I mean, we live in a time where we will make a serious mistake if we don't properly understand what motivates these people and what is going on. But if you are someone who believes, like I do, that Islam is not a religion of peace, it never has been a religion of peace, and never will be a religion of peace, and if you believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven and that these people are not you know, in, in an absolute sense, good people. They may be nice. They may be wonderful people at a human level, but they are not right. They are wrong. And and um, if you believe that, then you're going being painted more and more as the enemy. And that's the implication. That's the underlying innuendo of all of these talk shows. And that's part of what John is talking about when he says that uh, there are many antichrists. 
and many antichrists are coming up again and again, and that is the trend throughout the church age. And so what we find is exactly what Paul refers to in this last verse of 2 Timothy 3.5. There are people who hold to a form of godliness. It's just external religious observation. They may talk, they may even say the right things, use the right terminology, but it is purely external because they have denied its power. That is a true relationship with Jesus Christ based on faith alone and Christ alone and then exercising the power of God the Holy Spirit through the filling of the Spirit. And these doctrines are being rejected more and more today, but that is the core of real spiritual power, especially the filling of the Holy Spirit in conjunction with the Word of God. Now, another verse that deals with the last days is in Hebrews 1-2. In these last days, the writer of Hebrews says, identifying last days with his present time, which was certainly in the first century of the church. In these last days... He, that is, God, has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. Then again, in James 5.3, James confronts his readers and says, Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. In the last days refers to the church age that they're storing up their treasure uh, in this age, and their hope is on the, the present time and their present wealth and not a focus on the future. They had no uh, personal sense of their eternal destiny. And then Peter uses this term three times. In 1 Peter 1.5, he says that we are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And there he refers to that revelation towards the end of this age. And that refers to uh, not salvation in terms of justification, but salvation or deliverance at the rapture. So that includes the church age. And then in 1 Peter 1.20, Peter says, For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. So there he's using last times in terms of the early part of the church age. And then in 2 Peter 3.3, he says, Knowing this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. Once again, the last days there refers to the present time. So eschaton, the eschaton referred to in these verses include both the present church age and the tribulation. So we are living in the last days, but so is Peter, so is Paul, and so is John. And Jesus Christ appeared in the last days, and there are certain trends that take place. Now, John goes on to say that it is the last hour. And that term hour is used by John to refer to a temporal measurement within a day. That is something similar to what we would use for hour. And he uses it that way in John one thirty nine, John 4.6, and John 11.9. But he also uses that term to refer to an indefinite period of time a time of undetermined length in several verses, in John 2, 4, and 4, 21, and 23, where he, he says that a, uh, an hour is coming and now is when people will worship the Lord in spirit and truth. And that is not using the term hour. That's using the term hour to refer to an extended period of time. He also uses it that way in John 5, 25, 28, and 16, 
25. So last hour does not refer to a measurement on the clock, but it refers to an undetermined period of time or an age. And the fact that he uses the uh, present tense of continuous action, that it is the last hour, and the term last hour indicates expectancy. He's expecting something to come. It's the last hour. It's almost over with. And that introduces us to the doctrine of the imminency of the rapture. And so what we have in this first phrase, it's repeated at the end, it is the last hour, is an allusion to the doctrine of imminency. And we get into some important eschatology here in understanding imminency in this passage, which we'll just have time to cover this morning. Next week, we'll have to look at the doctrine of the Antichrist and what that refers to. And then when we get to the end of this, we will discover that it's all focused and it's pointing us, driving us like an arrow. All these, these three injunctions to the fathers, to the young men, and to the children to prepare them for what he says in verses 28, especially verse 28, where he says, And now little children abide in him, that means remain in fellowship, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink away from him at shame at his coming. See, all this is designed to prepare us for the fact that Jesus Christ could come at any moment, and we must not be in a position where we are ashamed when he comes. And that's driving us in that direction. So we need to build each element so that when we get there, we can have a good understanding of the dynamics. Okay, doctrine of eminency. First point, definition. Imminency. And let me tell you that imminency is spelled with two I's. I-M-M-I-N, not I-M-M-A-N. Those are different words. God is transcendent and imminent. That means he is present to his creation. He's imminent. That is not the same thing as imminent, I-M-M-I, which means that it is soon coming or at any moment. Eminency means it's impending. So don't confuse eminency with immanency. In the Oxford English Dictionary, we're told that eminent means something is hanging overhead. It's constantly ready to befall or overtake one. It is close at hand in its incidence. That means it could come at any moment. It's impending. It's threatening to occur. It does not mean that it is soon or immediate. Now, something can be imminent in that it could happen at any moment. Your mother-in-law may call and say, Well, sometime in the next six weeks I'm going to come and visit. Now, you don't know when your mother-in-law is going to show up knocking on the door, but you know that her, her visit is imminent. It could be tomorrow. It might not be for three weeks, but you better be ready. Or you may, she may say, I'm going to get there on Christmas Eve, in which case it's not imminent, so you can keep the house messy for another three weeks before she shows up. That's what imminent means. You don't know when it's going to happen, but it threatens to occur at any moment. And you have to be ready. So when we look at our definition of imminent, we say that it is certain it will occur, but it is uncertain when it will occur. It is certain it will occur. We know Jesus is coming back, but we do not know when. 
The timing is uncertain. We also know that it is not contingent on any other event. It is certain it will occur. It is uncertain when it will occur. It is not contingent on any other event or events, and no prophesied event intervenes between the believer and the rapture. There is no prophecy that must be fulfilled between now and the coming of the rapture. As a matter of fact, there is no prophecy fulfilled in the church age. Now, what we are seeing going on in Israel, and if you didn't hear the news this morning, there was another bombing that took place in a bus in Haifa. There were three bombs that went off yesterday. There was one that went off on Thursday. And uh, this morning, the bomb that went off in in, uh, Haifa blew up a bus, killed ten people, and created a sympathetic explosion in a nearby bus that also blew up. And with this escalation of violence in the Middle East, where when we're talking about the coming of Christ and thinking about uh, the rapture and all the things that have been going on the last two months, this is compressed. Everything has happened since September 11th, including that, that, that event and all the bombings and everything, suicide bombings and everything going on in Israel. That's going to be the morning news every day in the tribulation. And worse. This is, this is nothing. It's just a foretaste of the perilous times that will come during the tribulation. Now, the coming of Christ at the rapture, we're certain it will occur. It's uncertain when it will occur. It is not contingent on any other events, and no prophesied event intervenes between the believer and the rapture. So we don't look out on these events today and say, well, this is the fulfillment of prophecy. That's wrong. I was real pleased to read in a report from Tim LaHaye that came out right after September 11th that all the news media, of course, flocked to people like that. And he, they were, everybody was calling him up for an interview and asking the questions. The question, what impact do the, the, does the uh, events of September 11th have and what relationship do they have to prophecy? And he said, none at all. That was great. It doesn't. See, you know, so many of these sensationalists are running out there saying, well, this is somehow an indication that the end times are near. Well, it might be, but it might not be. This is just part of the violence. It's just part of the trends of the church age. This is not the fulfillment of any prophecy. Armageddon is not imminent. The Lord's coming is imminent, not Armageddon. So our definition includes the fact that there is no prophecy that must be fulfilled before Jesus Christ returns at the rapture. There is no prerequisite. The second coming is not imminent. It is the rapture that is imminent. The reason we know the second coming is not imminent is there are specific signs that must take place before the second coming. But if Jesus Christ's return is imminent, can happen at any moment, then there are no signs for the rapture. And that indicates that there must be at least two different comings or as as dispensational scholars have said, two stages to the second coming. The first stage is Jesus Christ comes in the air for his church and returns to heaven. And the second stage is the second coming when he comes to the earth, touches down on the Mount of Olives, and comes with his bride to destroy the forces of the Antichrist and the false prophet. So if signs come before, if there's any prophecy that has to come or take place, come to fulfillment before Jesus Christ returns, then that's what we're to be looking for. If the tribulation is going to occur before the second coming, 
then we're to be looking for the tribulation right now. And if there are no signs of the tribulation taking place, well, then we can just relax. Jesus isn't coming back for at least seven years. We, can, we have plenty of time to get ready for him. But if Jesus can come back at any moment, then we're not to look for anything other than his appearing. And then a, another point that we should make with regard to uh, the, our definition is that in this age, the church age, we're in the only dispensation in which there are just historical trends and no prophecy. The church age began with a prophesied event, the baptism of the Spirit, and it will end with another prophesied event, the rapture. But in between those two events, there are no prophecies to be fulfilled. That's why the church age was a mystery age. It was not revealed in the Old Testament. Now, the second point. The doctrine of eminency is important to understand the pre-tribulation return of Jesus Christ at the rapture. That's its importance. Is It undergirds the doctrine of the pre-tribulation rapture. That's why people who attack it are really not attacking it. They, they just know that if Jesus Christ's return is imminent, then it can't be at the end of the tribulation. It must be before the tribulation. Now, as we look at this, we have to look at a definition of the rapture. Definition of the rapture, it is the resurrection of all... Let's see. We've got it right here. The rapture is the resurrection of all dead church-age believers and the removal of all living believers from the earth at the end of the church age. And then instead of the word immediately, let's change that to just prior to the beginning of the tribulation. There's a short transition period between the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation. The rapture does not begin the tribulation. Remember that. What begins the tribulation, we'll see this when we get to Daniel 9 on Wednesday night, is when the Antichrist signs a peace treaty with Israel. That's what begins Daniel's 70th week, the seven-year period of the tribulation. So let's change the definition here to the resurrection of all dead church-age believers and the removal of all living believers from the earth at the end of the church age just prior to the beginning of the tribulation. Now, there are different ways of looking at the tribulation by scholars, and so I want to introduce you to that vocabulary. The first is a, what's called a partial rapture view. And that is the view that spiritual Christians, those who are in fellowship, are raptured at the end of the church age. But if you're a carnal Christian and you really haven't been obedient, then you're going to have to go through the tribulation. And so that's called the partial rapture position. At the rapture, only those faithful, totally dedicated Christians will be caught up, leaving the carnal Christians behind to be chastened by the tribulation. The second view that is promoted is the mid-trib rapture view. In the mid-trib rapture view, the rapture occurs in the middle of the tribulation, and thus believers endure the first half. Now, there's a new version of this called the pre-wrath rapture position, which locates the, the technical term wrath at the very end of the tribulation. And so it's not a mid-trib rapture. It's a rapture about three-quarters of the way tr through. But that position has problems. No believer, no church-age believer goes through the tribulation. Then the uh, third position 
is the post-trib rapture, and that is that all believers go through the tribulation and are not raptured until the end of the tribulation. One of the many problems with that position is, if Jesus' coming isn't until after the seven years of tribulation, then it's not imminent, because a lot of things have to take place before Jesus can come back. And then the position that we believe is the pre-trib rapture position. I don't have a chart for that. I don't think, no. And that's the position where believers are raptured at the beginning of the tribulation at the end of the church age. So instead of it going, lasting all the way through, believers are raptured right here at this point at the end of the church age, and we meet the Lord in the air. So that's just an introduction to terminology. Point number four. Point number three was the charts on the pre-, mid-, and post-trib views. Point number four, the purpose of the doctrine of eminency is to keep each believer in a constant state of expectancy. We don't know when he's coming back. It could be this afternoon. It could be tomorrow morning. It could be next week. It might not be for another three or four hundred years. But it could be tomorrow. And so we have to be ready. We have to be in a constant state of expectancy, looking, waiting, watching, and hoping for the return of Christ that we might be ready and prepared and not ashamed at His coming. 1 John 2:28. Let me go over that again. The purpose of the doctrine of eminency is to keep each believer in a constant state of expectancy, looking, waiting, watching and hoping for the return of Christ, that we might be ready, prepared, that we might not be ashamed at His coming, 1 John 2.28. If Jesus Christ didn't return until the end of the tribulation, after the rise of the Antichrist and after the seal judgments, the, bowl ju- the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments, then we could sit down and we could say, well, I'll get serious about my Christian life tomorrow. I'll worry about it when I'm in my... 30s or my 40s or my 50s. I'll get right with God later on. But see, if Jesus can come back tomorrow, then we better be ready for tomorrow. We live in a constant state of expectancy. Fifth point, believers are to look for the blessed hope. We are to look for the blessed hope. We're not to look for the Antichrist. We're not to look for the rebuilding of the temple. We are not to look for uh, restoration of an Israeli state or, 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 or Levitical priesthood. We are to look for the blessed hope. Three subpoints. We are to look for the Savior. Hebrews 9:28 and Titus 2:13. We are to look for the Savior. Hebrews 9:28 and Hebrews 2:13. That's our focus is Jesus Christ. Second, we are to watch for the Savior. First Thessalonians 5:6. In Luke 12:37, believers are exhorted to watch for the Savior. We're be a, to, to looking forward to His coming. There's a blessing promised to believers who are watching and waiting for the coming of the Savior. And then third, we are to wait for the Savior. We are to look, watch, and wait for the Savior. The third point is seen in 1 Corinthians 1:7 and 1 Thessalonians 1:10. We are to look, watch, and wait for the Savior, not for some other intervening event. Sixth point. Since there is no prophecy between the baptism of the Spirit and the rapture, it means that the rapture is imminent. 
that no prophecy takes place or is fulfilled between the baptism of the Spirit and the rapture means that the rapture is imminent. It could occur at any time. No one knows the day or the hour. We have to be ready. Point seven, the resurrection of the church, like our dying, is completely out of our control. We don't have anything to say about it. Just as we have no control over the time and the manner or the place of our death, we have no control over the time and manner of the rapture. We don't know when it's going to take place, and it will come, hopefully not as a shock, but only as a bit of a surprise. But we should be watching for it expectantly. Point number eight. The resurrection of the church is totally beyond our control because resurrection is the Lord's victory. It's totally out of our control. This is the Lord's victory, 1 Corinthians 15:57. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that victory is victory over death. And that victory over death is seen in the resurrection of Christ. And our resurrection at the rapture is based on that. That is when we have our victory. The ninth point. While the rapture is imminent, the second advent or the second coming is not. Before the second advent occurs, there are many different prophecies which must occur. For example, the rapture, the tribulation, and the judgment seat of Christ. So the second advent is going to be, come at the end of a specified series of events given in the Scriptures. Point number ten. The rapture could have occurred at the time of James or Paul because no prophecy had to be fulfilled before the resurrection of the church occurs. It could have occurred. Paul expected it in his lifetime. Peter expected it in his lifetime. And that motivated them to live in the light of that expectancy. So the rapture could have occurred at the time of James or Paul because no prophecy had to be fulfilled before the resurrection of the church occurs. And then point number 11, distortion of the imminency of the rapture results in instability and foolish explanations or speculation about the time of the rapture. Foolish explanation or speculation about the time of the rapture, and that is the basis for James' admonition in James 5, verses 7 and 8. So when that doctrine is distorted, what you end up with, and you see so much of this today, especially, I mean, it was bad before September 11th, but it's really bad now. All kinds of uh, prophecy mongers are coming out of the woodwork. I'm really looking forward to next week I will be uh, in Dallas or Fort Worth or in between probably uh, at the pre-trib rapture study group. And that will be a fascinating meeting. There's always uh, great insights from some of these true prophecy scholars, not prophecy mongers, and uh, they have great insights. It's also going to be interesting because on Monday night, the two speakers at the banquet, we've never had a banquet before. This is the 10th anniversary, so Tommy decided to have a banquet. And the two speakers are going to be Jerry Falwell and Tim LaHaye. So this should be this should just be an interesting, interesting time. Especially, and, and there's so many of these guys have gone to Israel and go to Israel five or six times a year and are very connected to uh, 
things that are going on in Israel. So there's tremendous insight into current events as well. And my friend Randy Price will be there also, and he always gives an excellent report on current events and what's going on there. So I'll uh, give a good report for the congregation here when I get back. Point number 12, let's look at key passages that teach imminency. See, this isn't just something that theologians have developed in order to buttress uh, a theological position. It's derived from the Scriptures. 2 Peter 3, 3 through 8 is a warning from Peter. Know this, first of all, that in the last days that... And here he's really talking more towards the end of the last days, and towards the end of the church age. Mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Well, you know, this has probably been true since the second century. Jesus said he was coming back. Well, where is he? They say he can come back at any moment. Well, why hasn't he come back yet? And they mock Christians. And we see even more of that today. Well, it's been 2,000 years. What do you mean Jesus is coming back? Oh, that's just a, he just, he's just going to come back spiritually. Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, that is when they, the false teachers, maintain this, Peter says, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water. That refers to the uh, restoration of the earth in Genesis 1-2, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. That is, things have not always been the same way. There was a major catastrophe that occurred about 2700 B.C. called the Universal Flood of Noah. goes on to say, Peter goes on to say, but the present heavens and earth, by his word, are being reserved for fire. Notice it's by his word, it's being reserved for fire. God's word is keeping things together. Nothing man can do can destroy it. We can't destroy it through bad environmental policies. We're not going to blow it up with nuclear weapons. Why? God is preserving it to reserve it for a judgment of fire that comes at the end of the millennium. It is kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Mankind is not going to destroy the planet. And then Peter says, But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. Now that's an interesting note. Because what this is what he's emphasizing is that God is timeless. But if Einstein's theory of theory of relativity is true, then based on that theory, what hap- what he is saying is that the speed of light, which is what, 186,000 uh uh, miles per second. The, the, the speed of light, the closer an object comes to, to reaching the speed of light, the more time slows down. So that if you were to, to speed up right now to the speed of light, and one day were to go by in your life, and then you were to stop and come back to real-time speed, a thousand years or more would go by. Because the faster you approach the speed of light, time slows down, but time's going on for every, everything else is going at a slower rate. So God is light, John tells us. So at the very least, we can say that he exists in a dimension that is timeless and not affected by time. So that means that for God, there is no time, and he sees the whole panorama of human history as one present. He, it's as if he's at a, got, got one chart in front of him, and he sees everything from the creation to the, at the beginning of time, to the, to the destruction of the current heavens and earth and the creation of the new heavens and earth, that's a 
eternal present to him. He sees it all. And that relates to also his omniscience. But the mockers come and they don't understand that. So they say, well, God, God hadn't shown up for a couple of thousand years. Well, in terms of God's timetable, only a couple of seconds have gone by. So God's not in a hurry. His time is di- timing is different from our timing. So 2 Peter 3, 3 through 8 warns us that people will become impatient and question whether Jesus will ever come back. Now, John 14, 1 through 3 is a crucial passage for understanding imminency. Jesus told his disciples, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to go. And if I go, verse 3, and how did he go? He went physically and bodily to heaven. The, the disciples in Acts 1 watched him ascend to heaven. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, indicating he's going to come again in the same way, and receive you where? To myself. Now, what are the disciples concerned about? They're, they're, they're still concerned about it after this. You know, in about three weeks, they're going to ask Jesus, well, is now the time for, your, for the kingdom? See, they're expecting that they're not going to go to heaven. They're expecting to stay on the earth in the coming kingdom. But that's not what Jesus said here. He didn't say, I'm going to come back and we're going to have the kingdom. He said, I will come again and receive you to myself. I'm going to take you to heaven. This is not talking about what happens at death. This is talking about what happens at the rapture. I will come for you, and I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. This is talking about the rapture. It's not a spiritual event. The Remember, the end of verse 3 says, I go to prepare a place for you. How did he go? He went physically and bodily. And his return is going to be in the same way. And that's what the angel said in Acts 1.11. They, that's the two angels, also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. That's physically and bodily. Jesus is going to return physically and bodily to take us to heaven, to where he is. That's not to the earth where the kingdom will be. So that indicates that there is two stages to that coming. One where he comes for the church and takes them back to heaven, and one where he comes with the church and establishes the kingdom on the earth. Another verse is in Revelation 22.12, where Jesus said, Behold, I am coming quickly. And the word there in the Greek is taxis, which means that once it starts, everything will come in correct order. It doesn't mean that I'm coming soon. See, there's a difference between the imminency of Christ and the soon coming of Christ. Imminency means it could happen at any moment. The soon coming means it's coming soon. Well, I can believe in the imminency of His coming and not believe it's in the soon coming of Christ. But I happen to believe it's both imminent and soon. But I may be wrong on the soon because I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet. A couple of other verses. James 5, 7 through 9 is crucial. Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it, until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And the Greek word is ingus, and it means it's near, it's imminent. It could happen at any moment. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. We have to be strong and be ready. 
Do not complain, brethren, against one another, that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. He is about to come. James wrote that 2,000 years ago, and Christ's coming is just as imminent. We should expect it with that same level of expectancy today as then. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 We are to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, that is, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. We're to wait, to wait expectantly. 1 Corinthians 1.7, Paul said, So that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation, that is, the appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are to await eagerly for it. Philippians 3.20 states, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to anticipate, we are to look forward to it and be ready for that coming. And verse 21 of Philippians 3, Who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. That's the resurrection of the church when we receive our resurrection body. 1 Thessalonians 4.15 Paul says, For thus... For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we, are who, we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. Paul is comforting those at, in this passage who have loved ones who have died. And he is teaching them that, that this isn't permanent or a permanent separation, but that the Lord is coming back and at which time we will all be uh, gather together. There's no hint that there's an intervening judgment of a raging tribulation between uh, their death and the reunification at the coming of the Lord. Titus 2.13 We are to look for the blessed hope in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's our blessed hope. We're to look for it, anticipate it. 1 Corinthians 16.22 If anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. And then Paul concludes Maranatha, which means Lord come. We are to be ready for it, anticipating it. Romans 13.11 is the warning to get ready. Paul says, And this do, knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to waken from sleep. For now salvation, that is deliverance, i.e. the rapture, is nearer to us than when we believed. Every instant it's closer. Even if it's a thousand years away, it's still closer. The night is almost gone and the day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh, that is the sin nature, in regard to its lust. And then in 1 Corinthians 15:51 through 53 Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. Now, if we let me back this up a minute to verse 51. Notice Paul said, I tell you a mystery. The context of 1 Corinthians 15 is resurrection. Physical bodily resurrection. That wasn't a mystery in the Old Testament. Abraham knew about physical bodily resurrection. So did David. But Paul says here it's a mystery. 
A mystery is a previously unrevealed doctrine. So he can't be talking about simply resurrection at the second coming. He has to be talking about the transformation at the rapture because that and only that doctrine was unrevealed in the Old Testament because they didn't know about the church. So this is a strong passage for the pre-tribulation rapture. Just a couple of more verses and then we'll be done. Philippians 4, 5. Paul said, let your forbearing spirit, that means patience, be known to all men. The Lord is near, Ingus. It's close at hand. Then our passage in 1 John 2, 28 and 29. I've already read that earlier tonight. And let's wrap up with 1 John 3, 1 through 3. Or this morning, rather. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies Himself just as He is pure. And that is a reminder. It's not the word katharizo. It's the word aginazo, which means to make pure. It's a synonym of katharizo, and it has the same idea of confession of sin. And in preparation for the Lord coming, we confess our sins to be filled with the Spirit so we can advance spiritually, so we can be ready. And 1 John 1, 1, or 3, 1 through 3 emphasizes the fact that we need to be ready for His coming. We don't have hymns like this anymore, but there's an old hymn I ran across, or the words for an old hymn, maybe we can find the music, that pictures the doctrine and the eminency of Christ. The words are great. We just don't, you don't write music like, or, or lyrics like this anymore. I am waiting for the dawning of the bright and blessed day, when the darksome night of sorrow shall have vanished far away. When forever with the Savior, far beyond this veil of tears, I shall swell the song of worship through the everlasting years. I am looking at the brightness, see it shineth from afar, of the clear and joyous beaming of the bright and morning star. Through the dark gray mist of morning do I see its glorious light, then away with every shadow of this sad and weary night. I am waiting for the coming of the Lord who died for me. Oh, His words have thrilled my spirit. I will come again for Thee. I can almost hear His footfall on the threshold of the door, and my heart, my heart is longing to be His forevermore with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this fantastic truth of Scripture we have that, that the Lord is coming back for us and His return is near. It is at hand and we should expect it. We thank you for the motivation, the challenge that this presents to be ready, to be prepared that we might not be ashamed at His coming. But we need to be ready. And that begins first and foremost with being ready in terms of salvation. We pray that if there's anyone here that is unsure of their eternal destiny and uncertain of what will happen to them when the Lord comes, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty in full so that all you have to do to be saved is to accept that penalty on your behalf. You need to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross according to the Scriptures, that He died and was buried and rose again according to the Scriptures that Jesus Christ paid the penalty in full, that you're not relying upon your works or your efforts or any other human factor, 
but on Jesus Christ and Him alone. Right now, right where you sit, all you need to do is believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and you will have eternal life. Father, we pray that the remainder remainder of us will be challenged by the truth of your word. That we would be challenged by the fact that Jesus could come back tomorrow and that we need to be ready. And that means we need to make doctrine the number one priority in our life. And our spiritual growth and spiritual advance the highest priority. We pray these things now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.